Amen. All right, now you can applaud if you would like to applaud. All right. Man, what an amazing song. Open your Bibles this morning, and I do hope that you have your Bible with you or a device that has the Bible on it. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 13, John chapter 13, and uh, just so excited to worship this morning, uh, so excited to remind ourselves of these great truths, amen, uh, that he has never failed us, and uh, man, it is an amazing reality when we know we can trust him indefinitely and, and just believe in what he has laid forth before us. And so this morning, we're going to get into his word. Uh, we're going to spend some time together continuing from what we started talking about last week. Uh, we, a couple weeks ago, we're in a series of messages, and we were finishing that series uh, here two weeks ago, uh, called or entitled A Reclaimed Marriage. A Reclaimed Marriage. And we went to Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to go there this morning for time's sake, but we went to Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians 5 and verse 25, we read this amazing uh, kind of a, a command, a, a strong wording to the husbands uh, of the, of the, in the marriage. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And following that message, I was thinking through, how does Christ love his church? How does Christ demonstrate his love to his church? Now we know Right off the bat, the verse tells us that he gave himself for her. We, he gave himself for his church. And so we know it was a self-sacrificing love. We know that Christ surrendered all, became all to go to the cross, took on flesh, died on that cross, was buried in a bald tomb, and rose again the third day. We know that he demonstrated the greatest, rather, demonstration of his love was he gave himself for his church. But is that really all that he shows his love in? Or does he demonstrate his love in so many other ways that we can acknowledge this morning and encourage us to praise and worship him for. And so last week, we started walking through a list of 10 Christ-like loves, 10 Christ-like loves. And we got through three of those last week. We talked about, and I'm just going to kind of call them out, name them, and then move on for time's sake. But so 10 Christ-like loves. The first three we talked about last week is it's a pursuing love. It's a pursuing love. He pursues you. Amen. He pursues you even when you didn't deserve it, when you weren't worthy. He chased after you. He, he initiated in your life. It's a stubborn love. It's a stubborn love. What do we mean by that? We mean that Christ is stubbornly committed to you. Amen. There's no way Christ is going to walk away from you in Christ. He's not going to save you one minute and leave you wayward the next and let you just go drift off into eternity somewhere else. He is stubborn in his love for you. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, he says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or age, depending on the translation. I am with you always. That's a stubborn, committed love. And, and the first thing I used to think would be, why would he be committed to me? Like, I don't have anything to offer. Why would he be so stubborn in his love for me? Because really his commitment to you, while yes, it is a commitment to you, it's more or maybe even... Yeah, I'd say it's greater a commitment to himself. He's committed to you. He loves you. He wants you. He's jealous for you, the Bible says. But he is committed to his own purposes and the will of God. He is committed to saving you eternally because of his commitment to the will of God. The Bible is so clear on this. He is stubborn to you, but he is also stubborn in his own commitment to his own will, purposes, and ways. And we should be so thankful for his love this morning. It is a pursuing love. It is a stubborn love. 
We talked about it's a hopeful love. Because his love for you is stubborn, and he says he is with you always, we can go to Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and we read that, that he is with us because he, and that with us gives us a hope. That I don't have to wonder or worry or fear. I have a hope. I have a guarantee that because he is committed to the purposes of God, we can have a hope that he's secure and strong. This hope is, is a rock-solid foundation. In eight, Romans 8 and verse 30, all of the, the things he describes us as justified and glorified, these are all in the past tense. What does that mean? In God's perspective, you are already those things in Christ. One day we will be glorified. We will leave this fleshy stuff. And I can't wait to relieve this flesh. And all oh, just the weights and the pains and just, oh. I know people say, you're only 37. You shouldn't have any pains. Man, there's some mornings I get out of bed and stuff's creaking and cracking and noises from places. I'm like, why did that make that noise? I didn't do anything. I just stood up. Like, what in the world? I'm so thankful when all that's gone and we will be glorified. But listen, we look forward to that, not, oh, I hope it happens. I hope it comes to be because I'm not sure. No, no, no. It's already taken place. We're just, we're just waiting for it to happen to us personally right now in the physical. But in God's eyes, it's already done and over with. He sealed that. You don't have to hope, man, I hope I get in. I've said it last week when you witness to people or you tell people about Christ and you say, do you know where you're going to go when you leave this world? They'll say, well, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I get into heaven. Man, we can have so much more than just a wish on a shooting star type hope. We can have a confident, secure guarantee from God's word that because we are in Christ, we are secure. We are strong in that. So it's a pursuing love, stubborn love, a hopeful love. And getting into some new content this morning, let's continue understanding what kind of love does Christ have for you and I? What kind of love does Christ have for his church? Well, the, the next one I want to look at is it's a serving love. It's a serving love. John chapter 13, and in verses 13 through 17, we read some amazing things that take place here. While the disciples are with Christ at dinner, he's preparing them for his departure. He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's getting ready to leave the world and just not a long period of time. And so he's preparing his disciples for this. And so everything Christ is doing here is a, is a demonstration. It's a representation and a lesson to us to learn today. Verse 13, following washing the disciples' feet. Now let that sink in for a moment. I know we've heard that a lot. It's a very popular Bible story. A lot of us have studied that or read that, that Jesus at the Last Supper got down on his hands and knees, wrapped himself in a towel, and washed the disciples' feet. He did the act of a servant. This is Son of God. This is God himself. This is Genesis. Let's make man in our image, God. And he gets down on the ground on his hands and knees, and he washes the disciples' feet. Lowest position of service. It's amazing to think about. Man, I, I, I get so frustrated with myself when I, when I read through that passage and I just, just breeze through it. I know this. Man, let that sink in for a second that Christ humbled himself that much. Why would he do that? Because he loves you that much. Because he's showing you, I'm here to serve you. Everything Christ did while on planet Earth in the Gospels was an act of service to you and I so that one day we can know him as Savior and in return serve him. So following that, verse 13, says, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then I, 
or if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, let's stop right here. There are some churches and denominations that have done foot washings. Some believe this is actually a commandment. If you look at Christ's wordings here, I do not believe this is a commandment given to the church on the same level as baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we can explain that more in detail if you have questions on that, but this is why I would say that. Look what he says in verse uh, 15. For I have given unto you an example. He's saying this is an example of serving one another. Now, is there anything wrong with churches doing feet washing services and those things? Absolutely not. Nothing wrong with it at all. It's fine. It's good. It's great. Nothing against it whatsoever. But we can't begin to say that we have to do this. Because he says, this is an example. What was he really demonstrating to them? Humility. Humble yourself. Serve one another. Which goes in the context of what he's going to get into through the rest of the gospel about serving one another. As the disciples were more worried about being number one, they were fighting for that number one position. He was humbling himself and showing them an example to follow. Verse 16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent me. If you, are ha- if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. When you humble yourself and serve one another, you will have joy and a blessing. You see, again, in this example here, we see that Jesus took every opportunity to serve and to minister to mankind. Every second on planet Earth, he took advantage of to serve and to serve mankind. He humbled himself to set an example for us to follow that if he could do it, so could we. If you're taking notes, and you guys know my feeling on this, I think notes in church are super important, not so you can just look real spiritual. So people down the aisle are like, woo, they're taking notes. They really love Jesus, right? But so you can go home and you can look over these things and pray over these things and allow God to continue to, to lead you and guide you through his words. If you're taking notes, you're also more likely to get into heaven, right? We all know that little statistic I throw out every now and then. People who take notes in church are 95% more likely to get into heaven. So just throwing that out there. Philippians chapter 2, we're not going to turn there, but Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8, super popular passage. But again, I, I pray it's more than just familiar to us. I pray it's, it's intimate to us. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, we read about that Christ humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. He took on the form of flesh so that he could go to the cross. And Paul's encouragement in that passage is have the same attitude, have the same mind as Christ. When you're in Christ, you are given a new ability. You can now discern the things of God. You can now choose to walk and live in a godly way by his grace. And we can now have the same attitude of humility and service. You see, Christ's love for you is a serving love. Christ gave up all to take on the form of a servant and then to die on a sinner's cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we understand this is the greatest demonstration. God demonstrated his love in the strongest and clearest way possible. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He served us in the way we didn't even know we needed. He served you and I in a way that we weren't even aware we were in need of. Because he loves you. He did everything so that you could know him. This idea of a serving kind of a love and doing everything that's needed to serve us and meet our needs leads to a forgiveness of sin. At salvation, we are completely forgiven of all sins. And when we fall in this life as a Christian, we can be forgiven in that moment as well. Which leads to the next type of a love. So it's a serving love, but it's also a forgiving love. 
forgiving love. You're in the book of John. Go over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 and verse 12. It's a, it's a serving love. It's a, it's a humility. It's a love that, that humbles. I pray that we would learn from that and humble ourselves and serve each other. Now, as you're going to John chapter 21, we're going to go to verse 12. You might think, I would love to be a serving type believer. I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. I, don't, I mean, do I just throw money at the problem? Like, what do I do with that? I can't, I can't give financially. You know, you can serve even so much greater at times than just with finances. You know, one of the greatest things you can do to serve somebody, seriously, is to pray for them. Maybe even take it a step farther. Maybe you pray with them. Maybe you have a conversation with them. Maybe you just let them know that you're a listening ear. Maybe instead of giving advice, you just listen and try to just understand what they're going through. Maybe you don't make surface judgments. Well, I know why they're going through that. You have no idea. So maybe you come alongside and you walk with them so that you can really understand how to best serve them. We said it a few months ago, but sometimes people will say, well, if you just give me some money for this, that would really help. If you would just pay this bill for me, that would really help. And they may think that's their greatest need. And you may do that at times to help somebody financially. I'm not against that at all. No, if, you, if God leads and the opportunity's there, hey, whatever. But sometimes maybe the better way to serve someone is to put into practice what Jesus did. He didn't just give out and give out and give out and give out and give out. He came alongside and tried to help disciple them, show them what these things could look like. So maybe instead of just meeting someone's immediate needs, maybe you do that to an extent and then you walk with them to encourage them so they don't find themselves back in that position six months from now. Maybe that's a serving love, maybe more so than just throwing things at the immediate needs. But this idea of a serving love leads to a forgiving love. John chapter 21 and verse 12. John 21, 12. Jesus saith unto them, come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then comes and takes bread and gives them and fish likewise. Verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to the disciples. After that, he was risen from the dead. Verse 15, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. Now, we're not going to get into all of that. We know that it's a back and forth between Peter and Jesus. But I love this interaction between the two because following Peter, denying Christ three times in one night, even trying to leave the ministry, if you will, depending on how you look at this passage, by just saying to the other disciples, hey, let's just forget it and go fishing. Okay, some guys, that's their problems or their solution for every problem. I'm stressed. Forget it. Let's just go fishing. Let's just, just go. So that's what Peter kind of encouraged them to do. They just kind of said, let's just go. Some see that as Peter's reasoning is to get back to the old way of living, to go back to his old job. To You know what? Jesus is gone. It didn't go like we thought. Let's just go back. Even after Peter had all these bloopers and all these blunders, Jesus comes to him, gives him something to eat, and says, hey, do you love me more than these? I love that. Do you love me more than these? He invites Peter into a conversation. He invites Peter into a moment to be forgiven and to repent. And I love the dialogue here between the two of them. But notice, though, in verse 15, how does he identify Peter? What's the first name he calls Peter by? Simon. It's interesting in the Gospels, and it's not, I don't know if this, it's just how I've always seen it. When he calls him Peter first, 
It's, it's usually when he did something good. It's when he said the right thing and he was in the spirit. Peter, he did a great job here. Whenever he blows it and, you know, shoves his foot down his throat to his knee, he calls him Simon. Now, his name is Simon. Who called him Peter? Jesus said, I'm going to call you Peter. You know what I think it kind of is? I think it's Jesus in a way. This is how I see it. Again, you can disagree. That's fine. I see it as Jesus subtly reminding Peter, hey, 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 hey. You're acting like Simon again. You're not acting like the Peter that I know you are. You're not acting like the rock that I'm going to build my church upon as far as your foundation of apostles. You're not acting like that, Peter. You're acting like the old man, the old way. And so he's trying to remind him of who he really is. And, and I love that he does this, but he forgives Peter. He encourages Peter. Can I point out something else interestingly here? Who makes breakfast? Jesus makes breakfast. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Maybe it's just me being silly, but like think, think about that for a second. The disciples are the ones out on the boat. The disciples are the ones that are scared, terrified, freaking out. They don't know what to do. Jesus shows up in his resurrected body, and the first thing he thinks is, I'm going to make them breakfast. I love the Lord, man. I love that he thinks about these things, and he's, he's serving them even in this moment. He could have showed up and said, I'm the resurrected Lord. You could have at least made me some fish, a little breakfast. i got to even do that myself. But he comes and he serves them. Here, come dine with me. Come spend time with me. He invites them into that relationship. And I love this about Jesus, that he's always initiating. He's always inviting. He's always the one saying, just come spend time with me. And through spending time together, we can work this thing out. We can come to a solution on this. And I love that he commissions Peter. And he says, go do this. Go feed my lambs. Go feed my sheep. Interestingly enough, Jesus commanded Peter, to, what he commanded Peter carries throughout the church today. Let me just let you in on a little secret here. The job, my job as a pastor, is not to entertain you. It's not to convince you to come here than to go to another church. I've mentioned this before. I had somebody sit across my desk from me years ago, and they said, well, we're kind of debating about this church and another church. So, okay, well, I'll be praying for you. I understand that happens. Sometimes you're called away and stuff. And the person leaned in and said, unless you can give me a reason to stay. No. I looked at this guy. I said, no. I said, that's not my job. That's not my job to convince you to pick church A over church B. What, I'm going to start telling you about how our program is better than this church or this is better than that church? Where is that in that book? I said, man, I'll tell you what I will do, though. And again, this is probably four years ago, five years ago. I said, I'll tell you what I will do, though. I said, I appreciate your heart. I appreciate that your desire is to make the right choice. I said, I'll pray for you for wisdom and guidance. Let's pray together. And then this person said, well, if you don't give me a reason to stay, if you can't talk me into staying, I'm just going to go. Okay. Uh, there's no hard feelings here. I, I mean, listen, you're telling me you're going to go connect to a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-following church where you want to connect, grow, and serve. Why would I talk you out of that? Let me help you. Go. See, my job is not to do any of that. My job is, by the way, side note, my job is not to build a church. My job is not to grow a church. My job is not to come up with the coolest strategies and all these things so that we can get some, some people in the seat. That's not my job. What is my job is that I will encourage you by preaching and teaching this book 
that you will get into the word of God on your own. And together we can discover what this book really says and what it means and apply it to our lives and then grow in Christ. See, that's my job to feed you this because I don't have the answers. If you're coming here thinking I got some newfound wisdom and you're going to be sadly disappointed because it's already in the book. It's in this book. You have access to it just like I do. My job is just to kind of put this out to you in a way that makes sense, that you can grab onto it and you can get a hold of it and you can allow God to work it in your life. See, that's my job. Ephesians, Paul says later in Ephesians chapter 4, to, my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that you will mature to a point of understanding your position in the ministry of Christ and in the world, and that you will go out and do what God has called you to do. That's our job as a church. That's my job as a pastor. And I pray every day that I will do that better tomorrow than I did today because I'm not there. I pray you would pray for me, that I will do what God has called me to do better tomorrow than I did today. And by his grace, he will keep strengthening us. But I'm so excited because when you see and understand this forgiving love, the same way that Peter was forgiven of Christ for denying him and all of that, and then Christ used him on the day of Pentecost to preach a sermon where thousands of people come to Christ. The same kind of forgiveness is offered to you and I today. Man, we are given so much when we are given the gospel. It's a forgiving love. It's a serving love. It's also a joyful love. A joyful love. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Go there with me if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. It's a serving love. It's a forgiving love. It's a joyful love. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Man, what a commission that is. Can we just pause there for a quick second? Where should our eyes be focused? Not on the circumstance, not on the storm, not on the politics, not on the culture, not on Satan, right? Not on any of that stuff. No, no, our eyes are focused on Christ. We're locked into Jesus Christ. We are just in tune and attentive to him. Why would we give him all of our focus, all of our attention, all of our direction? Why would it all be on Christ? For one clear, simple, profound reason. He is the author and finisher of our faith. You do not know Christ because you woke up one morning and said, "Mm, of my own accord, I'm just going to get my heart right and I'm going to get saved today. No, you know Jesus Christ as your Savior because he came to us first. You know Christ as your Savior because he gave to every man a measure of faith. Even your faith is not yours to claim glory and victory in. He gifted that to you so that you could choose to put your faith in Christ. Even the, even the moment you were presented with the gospel, the only reason you understood I'm a sinner in need of a Savior was because the Holy Spirit of God was working in your heart and in your mind convicting you of sin and righteousness. That's why you came to know Christ. So understand that when we see this verse, why do we look to him? Because he alone is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and end. He started it and praise God, he will finish it. He goes on to say this, because of that, look at who this Jesus is. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, 
How can there be joy when you're going to a cross? How can there be joy when you've been beaten and tormented and mocked and ridiculed and spit upon, crown of thorns shoved into his brow so that the blood would run down his face, just beaten multiple times? What joy is there in that? How can anyone take joy in that? But I love the wording here in Hebrews. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He pushed through by the grace of God because there was something that was going to come from this. There was something that was going to result from this. There was something that was going to come out of this that made it all worth it. Do you know what that something was? I'll give you a hint. It's not a something. It's a someone. And it's you and I. We are the, that's the joy. He would have relationship with his creation. He would be glorified. His grace would be on display. All of those things brought great joy to Christ. It brought Christ great joy when he went to the cross, not because of the pain and anguish committed against him, but because of what that would accomplish for us. But that joy doesn't just lead Christ to offer us salvation. The Bible's clear. Christ also wants us to be joyful in our salvation. This is what we're reading in, or what we read in John chapter 10, that we should abide in him. And when we abide in him and his words abide in us, our joy will be full. And I love what Kathy talked about this morning. So many people come to church and I get it. Man, listen, hear me now. Circumstances being what they are, it's hard some days to be joyful. And can I let you in on a little secret? It's okay to let someone know. You ain't got to be a jerk about it. But let someone know man, I'm just, I just, I'm not joyful today. I'm just not, I'm just not in that place right now. But please don't fall victim to getting into that way of thinking and then choosing to never leave that place. But to realize that, God, you still love me. You're still here for me. Man, what did that song just remind us of? That you have never failed me? And I, as we begin to change our thinking back on him and get back into prayer and back into the word of God and read about his love for us, I believe if we will open ourselves up to him, God will begin to remind us of that joy and our joy can be restored and it can be full. You see, your salvation doesn't just bring God joy and Christ joy because you're in connection with him. It doesn't just bring you joy because one day you'll go to heaven. Praise God, that's a joyful thought, amen. One day I'll leave this just crazy place and I'll go be with him in perfect paradise. That should bring us great joy. But even in the day-to-day, we can have joy. We can be joyful. He loves us and is joyful over us. And when we know him, that should bring us great joy. So we're able to do as Paul says, which is the easiest verse to memorize, most likely in all the New Testament, but it's one of the hardest ones to apply. Paul encourages us. He says, rejoice in the Lord. See, most of us have it down. Most of us know this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always, And then he says it this way. And I love this about the Apostle Paul. Because some people in the church were like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, all right, yeah, whatever. He says, no, no, no. And again, I say rejoice. You want to throw your excuses? That's fine. Rejoice. Yeah, but you don't. Okay, that's fine. Rejoice. But you don't understand. That's fine. And again, rejoice. That's what Paul is kind of doing here. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Some of you are singing the song in your head right now from Sunday school. Don't, don't sing it out loud, though. Okay, we're good. We'll move on. Once you think about this, though, how is that possible to rejoice in the Lord always? I know some of you, 
have been through some things in the last couple of months, and you've prayed for joy. <laughs> you've prayed, God, there's got to be a purpose in this madness, but it's been tough to rejoice in the Lord always. Do you know what I love about this? How can I rejoice in the Lord always? Well, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20 tells us what? I am with you always. How can I rejoice in the Lord always? Because he's with me always. Therefore, I always have a reason to be joyful. I can never have an excuse not to be joyful. Now, this doesn't mean I'm always happy with my circumstance or happy with what's going on around me or happy with another person. That's, that's a different matter. But I can have joy even in persecution. I can have joy even when I don't like what's going on because my joy is rested in Christ and him with me always, not in my circumstances always being good or always being the same. See, it is a joyful love. Let's look at one more. I believe we've got three more after this. Um, so what I want to do is, and this is just an idea, I put myself in a corner here, okay? Because I started a 10-point sermon, and then I told you we're starting a new series next week. We're going to have three points left over. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, this week, uh, we'll, I'll put a video on Facebook uh, that'll have these, the three points I'm not going to get to this morning, we'll have those on there. So if you haven't liked our Facebook page yet, do that but you'll be able to get access to it there as well, okay? So just so you know, you're not going to just not get these points. But I want to make sure, I, I didn't want to come up here and just rush through all this either, so I want to make sure we spend time on it. But I want to look at one more, and then we'll kind of move into the conclusion and kind of wrap up this morning. But I want to give you one more that I believe is so vital for our Christian walk today. It's not just a joyful love. It's also a sanctifying love, a sanctifying love. If you're not sure how to write sanctifying or spell that, you can just write a holy love. Maybe even a love that makes us holy. 1 John chapter 2. Go over there with me. 1 John chapter 2. It's a sanctifying love. 1 John chapter 2. Let me say again how much I appreciate you bringing your Bible with you this morning or having it on a device. Um, the Word of God is where the power lies. And so we need to keep going back to the Word of God and uh, allow this to be our foundation. And so if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, we'd love to put one in your hand. Uh, there's apps available for that. There's our own church app has a Bible on it. Uh, there's free Bibles at the Welcome Center if you want to pick one up. But we want you to have the Word of God so you can see these for yourself, not just here, but also in your own personal devotions. And so 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, that's not a derogatory term, by the way. This isn't John making fun of us. In our culture today, if you say, oh, you're acting like a child, we mean that in like a negative sense. You're being immature, you're being childlike. In this sense, what John is saying here, he's saying, my little children, it's a term of affection. John is the, was the last living apostle. Uh, he was isolated to an island and was uh, kind of died there. But he was the last living apostle. And so he's kind of the, if you want to say, like the father figure of the church at this time. He's the one that's kind of the, the one fatherly loving and caring for the church. And so that's why he uses these terms when writing to believers, as he does here in First John. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man, have an, if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And again, a familiar verse, but have we really stopped and thought about what this verse communicates? John writing to the church gives us the goal to strive for as believers. What's the goal? Sin not. 
That's our goal. That's our focus. Not so that God will forgive me, love me, and let me into heaven. No, I'm already accepted and forgiven in Christ. All my sins are forgiven. So now my goal to sin not is not to get salvation, but because I've experienced the love and grace of God, now I want to honor him in all these things. I don't want sin anymore. I don't desire those things anymore. Now, we know that the flesh is still very active, and sometimes we do experience temptation, but we need to remind ourselves that what we have in Christ is so much better than whatever sin is offering you. None of us would choose to lick scraps off of a floor when there's a feast on the table. The Bible's pretty clear on this. It says when we go back to our sin as believers, it's like a dog returning to its what? You ever watch that? You ever seen a dog do that? Do you ever look at that and go, hmm, that looks tasty. I get why he's doing that. We had chicken last night, and it's right there. That's good. Nobody does that. If you stand there and think, that's cool, something's kind of wrong, okay? Like, you should have a doctor check, I and mean, something's not right. Nobody looks at that. Everybody looks at that and goes, oh, that's disgusting. Most of us tell our dog to what? Don't you wish Jesus would verbally say sometimes, stop it. Just stop it. Stop sinning. Now, I, I, there's t- now, there are times where it's borderline audible, isn't it? I mean, like he's thumping you and it's real. What was, that hurts, okay? That's Jesus. Stop doing it. I've, I've joked with people before. If you ever come to me for counseling for any reason whatsoever, I will not yell at you, stop sinning. Okay, now that that's off the table, there's been situations I'm just like, I just don't know what to do. Mm, I have a suggestion. What? Stop sinning! Just stop it! No, I wouldn't really do that, okay? But why, you might think, that's so mean. I, I just got done telling you, Jesus says that to me at times in my life. Just knock it off. Why did you do? You didn't have to say that. Transparent moment. I had to apologize to my wife the other day. Because you know why? As husbands, let me let you in a little secret, ladies. We say things just to make you feel bad in our flesh. Just being real. I made, she said something to me that I, I got all about because I was being emotional, whatever. <laughs> and I got all like, fine. So the next morning, I made a point in my sinful thinking to go and make sure she knew that bothered me. Now, there's nothing wrong with letting someone know that something bothered you. What's your motivation behind letting them know, though? Is it so that there's restoration and everything can move on? Or is it just so that that person can go, oh, I'm sorry. And you go, hmm, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> What's the reason? If the reason is so you go, mm-hmm, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> wrong. Sitting. But if you go in and say, hey, listen, I just want you to know. I've already forgiven you for it, but I want you to know this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. Now, I have a very gracious wife. She just looked at me and she said, you know what, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, blah, 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 blah. Then, of course, I'm like, mm, Holy Spirit, conviction. You know what, let me just, I'm, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have even said anything. We all have these moments where you have to just kind of stop. That's what John is saying. Hey, listen, you want a goal for your life? Don't sin. You know what most people will say the minute you say don't sin or stop sinning? Well, I can't help it. After all, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Please stop defeating yourself in your own thinking. You were a sinner 
You have been saved by grace. Now the Bible says you're a saint, a child of God, beloved, son, daughter. Those are the terms you want to start calling yourself. Were you a sinner saved by grace? Absolutely. Do, do you and can you still sin as a believer? Yes. But what's the goal? Sin not. And we defeat our own thinking. Well, I'm just going to sin anyway. Why would you set yourself up like that? No, think this way. God, by your grace, I choose to not sin. And it's not self-will or willpower. Or you wanna, it's God's grace in you. He's given you his Holy Spirit and his word to equip you that you don't have to give in to that sin. You can choose to resist in Christ's name. But so many believers just, oh, well, I'm going to sin anyway. Just stop that. Stop it. Okay. What if God, like, like sovereignly just, like, on the snout, like a newspaper appeared before you when you tried to sin? Like you do to your dog, you know, like, knock it off. That would be great. I'd love that. Okay. That's not in the Bible, but maybe it should be. I don't know. So let's move on. Verse, verse 1. It says, sin not. Then he says this, because he knows human nature. He knows that we're, we're flawed beings. Even in Christ, we can stumble. Look what he says. And if any man sin, present tense, we have an advocate, present tense, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's the goal? Sin not. However, if any man sin, we have a defense before the Father, and it's the person and work of Jesus Christ. He defends you. He speaks for you. I want to read this, and then we're going to wrap it up. Matthew Henry said it so well. And I love reading commentators who are already dead and gone because they can't change their mind. So, Matthew Henry said it this way. Don't agree with everything Matthew Henry says, but I love this. He says this, in regards, in regards to this passage, this verse, he says this, all men, hear me now, all men in every land and through successive generations are invited to come to God through his all-sufficient atonement. And by this new and living way, the gospel, when rightly understood and received, sets the heart against all sin and stops the allowed practice of it. At the same time, it gives blessed relief to the wounded conscience of those who have sinned. And I love that. When we come to know Christ, our hearts in Christ are set against those things. We don't desire those things like we used to. Now again, every now and then, right, temptation comes up. We're tempted in a moment, in a situation. But speaking as a whole, our whole way of thinking starts to change. Remember when you first got saved? No one had to come alongside and say, okay, now stop doing this and stop doing that. Now some of you went to churches like this and so you started doing it. But most of us, when we came to know Christ, we were being revealed to us through the reading of his word. Man, I, I gotta quit doing that. I can't do, I can't, I can't. And all of a sudden we started learning these things. Why? Because our hearts were being changed. Our minds were being changed. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we don't stumble. But it means that we now have the ability to discern sin from righteousness. What pleases God and what doesn't please God. We can make these choices by God's grace. And because he's given us the strength to do so. And so it's a sanctifying love. Our defense remains from the moment of our salvation until we stand before Christ one day. We were sanctified and made holy at salvation and are kept holy through Christ. We will continue, he will continue rather, to make us holy and continue to set us apart unto himself as he continues to make us into the image of Christ. Let me close with this. Have we ever stopped, have you stopped recently, last few days, to really acknowledge 
and realize the power of the love of Christ in your life. The so, there's just the, the, the many ways that that becomes real for us. Let me encourage you with this. We are able to defy the serpent with love. We are able to divide, defy the serpent with love. What do I mean by that? We have an enemy today. We have an enemy, that ancient serpent, who desires to squirm his way into our homes, into our lives, and cause havoc. But praise God, we know the state snake crusher. You know the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ, who has already defeated him and loved us with a supernatural love. When he comes in whispering lies, you speak back truth. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world because he loves me. I love God because he first loved me. No one can separate us from the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We start memorizing and learning these truths so that they are they are defenses against the temptations in this world and the lies of the enemy. Man, do you know Christ's love today? Do you know him personally? If you don't, maybe you would come and receive Christ today. Not a religion, not a good works, but you'd receive Christ and say, no, I need to know his salvation because I don't know it. I've never asked for forgiveness of sins. Maybe you'd come and do that today. Or maybe you're here and you're a believer today and you want to come and just bend a knee and say, God, I want to acknowledge your love over me. It's not just a love that brought me salvation. It's a love that pursues, that forgives. It's a love that sanctifies. It's a love that, that builds me up. Maybe you want to come and praise him for that this morning. However God is leading, would you respond? Would you bow your heads right there where you are? Father, as we come before you this morning, we are so thankful for the love of Christ in our lives. We are so thankful that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins, to be buried and to rise again. And I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room knows you as their savior. I pray, Lord, that no one in this room will leave here today without taking a moment to really evaluate their standing before you, to evaluate if they really know you personally and intimately. That they would make a decision today to say, you know what, Lord, I need to confess my sins. I need to repent of my sins. I need to ask you to save me. I need to ask you to, to open my mind and open my heart to you, that I would know you and that you would know me. That I wouldn't try to work my way into your salvation and work my way into your heaven, but I would just freely trust in the gift you've given, that you would be glorified. Maybe you're here today, and as a believer, your prayer would be something like, God, help me to know your love in a new way today. It's not a new love. You've always loved me. But as a follower of Christ, I want to know you, and I want to know your love. Lord God, we ask that you would Give us wisdom in all these things that you alone would be glorified and lifted up. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we sing a song of invitation? Would you come and bend a knee? Would you pray and ask God to lead God and direct? Maybe you want to come and say, thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for sanctifying me and making me holy even when I was in my sin. Would you come and pray as we spend time with him this morning?